Right now, many churches are planning their budgets for the next fiscal year. Your church can support the worldwide outreach of Issues Etc. by joining the Issues Etc. 300. We're looking for 300 congregations to include $1,000 in their mission or advertising budgets. Find out more about the Issues Etc. 300 on the support page of our website, issuesetc.org. Don't miss your congregation's budget deadline. Download the flyer and present it to your congregation today. Welcome back. We're turning back to Genesis chapter 1, continuing our series that we're having every week here in four parts with Dr. Joel Heck on the Genesis creation account. You can't leave Genesis chapter 1 behind too quickly. And what will be important for today's conversation is that we see Genesis chapter 1 as a part of, an integral part of, not only the beginning, but an integral part of all of the book of Genesis, which in every other respect, I would note, presents itself as simple narrative history. Now, those who doubt that Genesis chapter 1 is simple narrative history really must answer the question, so when does the book of Genesis as a whole stop being whatever you think the first chapter is, poetry, legend, myth? When does it stop being that, and when does it start being simple narrative history. I asked a aging Lutheran pastor once who said I shouldn't be teaching a six-day creation. People don't believe it anymore. I said, well, when does Genesis turn into history? He said, well, sometime before chapter 12, because he didn't want to dispense with good old Abraham. He didn't have so much problem with Noah and Adam and Eve. Joining us to continue our series on the Genesis creation account, Dr. Joel Heck, professor of theology at Concordia University, Texas, and author of The Issues, Etc., a book of the month for May, In the Beginning, God, Creation from God's Perspective. Dr. Heck, welcome back. It's a pleasure to be back with you and with your listeners. Is there any credence to the argument that is often made that the first chapter of Genesis is, is poetry or mythology or something like that, figurative narrative rather than simple historical narrative? Very little credence to that. One of the things that I think people do is to look at the similarity in the accounts for the creation days, days one through six, and note that they all start out the same and they all end about the same with the phrase, and God saw that it was good, and they're, they're one or more creative acts on each day. And they look at that parallelism and they say, ah, poetry in the Old Testament and New Testament, for that matter, is characterized by parallelism. So since you got this parallelism, therefore, in those six days, therefore, that that chapter must be poetry. But that's that's not the kind of parallelism of Hebrew poetry uh, that is true of the Psalms, where the second line of, uh, say, Psalm 19, verse 1, the heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament shows his handiwork. The second line repeats the ideas of the first line, only in slightly different language to reiterate the point, or sometimes in what we call antithetic parallelism, the, the second line will say the opposite of that. There's none of that going on in Genesis 1, at least not until you get to verse 27, which I do think is poetry because it has three lines of parallel thought uh, in that 27th verse where the creation is actually recorded. But probably the the best way to 
dispel this, and there are a number of ways of doing this, but I would just invite a reader to read Genesis 1 and then read Psalm 38, verses 4 to 7, which is a poetic account of creation, and compare the two. And there's really no comparison. Job's is clearly uh, poetic, clearly uh, uses the Hebrew parallelism, as I described earlier, and Genesis 1 does not. In the broader context of the book, and I, I can't imagine how someone would argue that the entire book of Genesis doesn't present itself as historical narrative, although I imagine there may be someone who does that. Most people will concede that at some point, even if the first chapters aren't, the book itself is. How important is it to consider Genesis 1 in the broader context of the entire history that is Genesis? Yeah, there's somebody that says any text without a context is actually a pretext. So if you lift any given chapter or any given verse out of the context, you run the risk of distorting it. And I, and I think that's what can happen with Genesis 1, too. But it's, it's very consistent throughout the entire book of Genesis. Uh, those that think the first 11 chapters are much more likely to be legendary and non-historical. They have trouble explaining chapter 10, which is the Table of Nations that has all kinds of historical names and places, Uh, the sons of Shem, Ham, and Japheth, uh, the the territory of Canaan, uh, Havilah, Seba, uh, all kinds of... uh, uh, identifications have been made of these various locations. The cities of Erech, Babylon, Akkad, and Kalna are mentioned in Genesis 10, verse 10. So, I mean, that's that's nine chapters after the first chapter, but it's all like that in the first 11 chapters of Genesis. And even though the first 11 chapters could be described as primeval history in the last 39 chapters as patriarchal history, uh, that is a different type of subject matter, but that really doesn't address the question of the type of literature that we have in Genesis 1 or in the first 11 chapters of Genesis. Would you say, it's all history. Would you say that, in, in spite of the distinction that you just made there, between periods of history, in essence, pre- and post-flood, more or less, history, mm-hmm. uh, in spite of that, is the narrative in the original language seamless? Or I guess what I'm asking is, is there any point before Genesis chapter 12 in the text itself that would signal the honest reader to say, oh, what came before this must be myth, now starts the the real history stuff? There's no such thing as that. There's no gap in the text. Uh, So often in Scripture, we're given clues in the context that that we are reading something other than straightforward history. Before Jesus tells a parable, for instance, he's, he uses the word parable. I mean, not in every instance, but you understand uh, that it's a parable because he gives you a clue to that effect. Or when uh, Paul in Galatians talks about the allegory of Hagar and Sarah, he's basing his application of that historical story from Genesis um, He's basing the application on a historical story, but then he's he's turning Hagar and Sarah into an allegory of the the woman of faith versus the woman of works and teaching us an important point about justification by grace through faith. So he, he tells us that he's about to give us an allegory before he gives us the allegory. You don't have anything like that in the first 11 chapters of Genesis. 
or anywhere. I mean, you do have the the one recurring phrase, this is the account of, the way the NIV uh, translates it, and different translations have done it differently. The old King James said, these are the generations of. That phrase occurs 11 times in the book of Genesis, but it seems to be a, a theme that joins that which precedes to that which follows and may actually be uh, the editorial work of Moses himself, who I think was working with written accounts that had come down to him from people who lived through the events that are recorded in Genesis. You mentioned in your book, you mentioned rather briefly, but um, I think it's probably wise to consider what it is one Stephen Boyd has written with regard to the first chapter and a yeah. little bit of the second chapter of Genesis. Who is this, and uh, what has he had to say? Yes, he's a Hebrew scholar from the West Coast, from California. He teaches at the Master's College, uh, the college established by John MacArthur. And uh, he studied different types of verbs that show up the, um, in, the, in the Hebrew text of Genesis 1 and other parts of the Old Testament. He actually... Um, came up with, and I think this is other people's data, about 500 texts of Scripture that can be divided between poetry and prose, and he selected about 100 of them, 97 to be exact. 48 of them were narrative prose, and 49 of them are poetic. And uh, the the preterite verb is a the verb that appears much more frequently in poetry and uh, not in prose. And so he did a statistical analysis of the percentage or the, the number of preterite verbs that appear in the prose versus the poetry and came up with what statisticians, statisticians call a logistic regression that concluded that the likelihood of the Genesis 1 count, Genesis 1, 1 to 2, 3, actually, the likelihood of that being um, prose is 99.99% because of the, the, the types of verbs that appear in these two contexts. So he says, he concludes that it is statistically indefensible to argue that this text is poetry. Verse 27, yes, uh, I, I buy that. Uh, and you can you can see that by seeing the parallelism in the three phrases. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So the, the second line says the same thing as, as the first line and actually throws in a little chiasm there where the order of words from the first line are switched in the second line uh, to to provide some poetic beauty in that in that verse. But that's the only verse in that first chapter plus the next few verses of chapter 2 that are poetry. Well, let's stop right there. When we come back, I find this intriguing because if there is a verse of bona fide Hebrew poetry in the first chapter of Genesis, then it certainly stands in relief from the rest of the text. If it were all poetry, we wouldn't, it wouldn't stand out at all. Not uh, in terms of its structure, not in terms of its content. It wouldn't stand out at all if it were all really just poetry. But in fact, because the rest of the first chapter isn't poetry, that verse does stand out 
Even the casual reader realizes they've shifted gears there from prose, from simple narrative to something more figurative. We'll be right back. In 1521, at the Diet of Worms, Martin Luther was asked to recant his writings. Luther responded, Unless I am convinced from the sacred scriptures that I am in error, I cannot and will not recant. Here I stand. I cannot do otherwise. God help me. Amen. Will you stand with us as we proclaim these Reformation truths in the 21st century? You can take your stand by becoming a monthly or annual contributor to Issues Etc., To find out how you can become an Issues Etc. confessor, apologist, reformer, or patron, check out the donate page of our website, issuesetc.org. Just look for the picture of Martin Luther posting the 95 Theses. Help us proclaim the solas of the Reformation, Scripture, faith, grace, and Christ alone. Here we stand, Issues Etc., and you. Where doctrine is life. You're listening to Issues Etc. Abortion and Economics This is a special commentary from the Susan B. Anthony List, named for the suffragette who was proudly pro-life. Rick Santorum, a former U.S. Senator from Pennsylvania and a candidate for president, recently made a point about the Social Security system that caught our attention. Santorum said, The Social Security system is a flawed design, period. But having said that, he continued, it would work a lot better if we had stable demographic trends. In particular, he said, our abortion culture has made it so that we don't have enough workers to support the retirees. A third of all the young people in America, he said, are not in America today because of abortion. Are you pro-life? Then visit our website at sba-list.org and discover how you can make a difference. I'm Marjorie Dannenfelser, president of the Susan B. Anthony List. Thanks for taking a stand. Welcome back to Issues Etc. I'm Todd Wilkin. Dr. Joel Heck is our guest. It's part two of a four-part weekly series we're doing with him on the Genesis Creation account. We're basing our conversation on a book he's recently written. It's the Issues Etc., Book of the Month for May, In the Beginning, God, Creation from God's Perspective. This is a simple book, but it's amazing how much in the few pages that are there is contained by way of simple, straightforward, and honest treatment of Genesis chapter 1 and arguments brought together against the common objections to an allegorical, metaphorical, parabolic reading of Genesis chapter 1. The book is called In the Beginning, God, Creation from God's Perspective. Find out more about it at our website, issuesetc.org, or call and order it. It's only three ninety nine plus shipping and handling. Concordia Publishing House's number, 1-800-325-3040. 1-800-325-3040. Ask for the Issues Etc. Book of the Month for May, In the Beginning, God. Dr. Heck, You mentioned before the break that 27th verse of Genesis chapter 1 that you concede Mm -hmm. is bona fide Hebrew poetry in its form, in its content. 
does it stand out precisely because the rest of the chapter isn't poetry, but in fact prose? I think that's an excellent point. In fact, I wish I had thought of that. I probably would have put it in the book. Uh, But read verse 27 and then read the preceding and the following verses, and you'll see it does stand out. It's very different from the preceding and the following verses. In fact, it's very different from the entire rest of the chapter. So let's talk a little bit about uh, conclusions that have been drawn earlier about the genre, if you will, of Genesis chapter 1. What did the reformer Martin Luther conclude about what kind of literature? He is, in fact, probably one of the foremost Old Testament scholars, people often don't realize this, of his day. Uh, He was a genius of Old Testament exegesis, lectured extensively on Genesis and the Old Testament. What did he conclude about Genesis chapter 1? Martin Luther was very unambiguously a young earth creationist. In fact, I quote him in the book, and this is, this is what he says. He says, we assert that Moses spoke in a literal sense, not allegorically or figuratively, that the world with all its creatures was created within six days as the words read. But I don't know that you can get any more explicit than that. And People that typically opt for a different translation avoid quoting Martin Luther, or those who opt for a different interpretation avoid quoting Martin Luther because Martin Luther is very strong. Of course, he was strong on the word from beginning to end, but he's very strong in his understanding of Genesis 1 as recounting a creation that took place in six 24-hour days. Some are bolder than others. Some have asserted that what we have in Genesis chapter 1 is a reworking or perhaps a kind of a twin, uh, a distant cousin of another document, uh, usually called generally the Gilgamesh epic. It's a Babylonian uh, Mm -hmm. Canaanite myth, actually, a Canaanite myth of uh, creation, which has some parallels, although when I was forced to take Ugaritic at the seminary and read these things— in transliteration, the parallels very quickly disappear between Genesis and the Gilgamesh epic of creation. Talk about that, if you would. Yeah, well, the Gilgamesh epic is really a flood story, but the Enuma Elish is part of that same sequence of Babylonian stories. Uh, I mentioned it and the Atrahasis epic and Hesiod's Theogony is three stories from Babylonia, uh, Sumer, and um, the ancient Near East that were written in the, about 1800 and 1700 B.C., and Hesiod wrote about 700 B.C. And just like all you have to do to, com- to find out what type of literature Genesis 1 is, is to read Genesis 1 alongside of Job 38, likewise, to, to see the lofty character of Genesis 1, all you need to do is read it alongside of any of these other epics. Those three stories have uh, some rather seedy examples of the way in which the gods fight among one another. And in one instance, in the in the, in Numa Elish, the Babylonian creation account, they depict creation of mankind as being done in order to relieve the gods of the necessity of manual labor. It, it's really kind of dull reading, uh, repetitive reading. It doesn't flow well. It's not nearly as concise as the biblical story nor does it place the, the creation of man on the sixth day as a high point of God's creation, which is clearly one of the messages of the first chapter of Genesis. So would it be more 
reasonable to posit that what we have in those Babylonian, then later Canaanite myths and legends regarding creation, and some parallels with the Genesis account, first 12 chapters, that what we have there are corruptions, or pagan corruptions, or even perhaps even pagan speculations with only a distant memory of the actual truth of the matter. That, that's my conclusion. As others have concluded about the flood stories, there are several dozen countries around the world that have flood tr- traditions, and some of them have some amazing similarities to the biblical flood story. If we believe that the Holy Spirit was involved in inspiring the text of Scripture, as, as I certainly believe, then when human beings hear that story and copy it down or pass the story on, or just pass the memory of a story on and it gets incorporated into another story, that secondary story is going to be is not going to be as accurate as likely to have some corrupted versions of that. So yes, Genesis one is the original, it's the correct one, and other creation stories are echoes of it and testify to the fact of there being an original creation and an original account of the creation, but are not accurate uh, records of that creation itself. How do you respond to someone who says, look, there was a time back during the Renaissance when science was flowering, in particular astronomy, when the Copernican Revolution took place and uh, both the church and civil society were forced to struggle with the idea that Earth was not at the center of a system but was in fact off-center from the system— the Copernican Revolution, so to speak. And what we're really doing here in hanging on to this six-day creation, 24-hour six-day creation, is just making the same mistake that our predecessors made in refusing to go along with the revolution. Well, the fact of the matter is that the vast majority of scientists didn't go along with Galileo or Copernicus either. So it's not just that the the Church had some problems dealing with it. It's that all of society had problems, including the scientific community. So this is a a different situation. It's, it's, um, It's really fundamentally, I think, an exegetical problem or an exegetical question. We need to deal with what does the text say, and we need not to be uh, shamed into going along with the majority, because I don't, I don't think truth is ever established by a majority vote. Then how would you describe how f- chapter 1 of Genesis fits into the entire genre of Genesis, the book? Well, as an account of origins, it lays the foundation. <clears throat> we, it, it talks about the image of God, which is really one of the most important concepts of the first chapter and is still held down to this day, even though the, <clears throat> the image of God has been corrupted by sin. It's still in every individual human being. And so we are set apart from the rest of creation, especially set apart from the animals. But having the the account of the creation given to us, and then in chapter 2, a closer look at a portion of that creation account is the establishment of marriage, then that paves the way for understanding the story of the fall of man. And it it wouldn't be uh, unusual or inappropriate to jump from the fall of man to uh, the redemption of man at the time of Christ. In fact, Paul does that in the book of Romans when he says, as in Adam all die, so in Christ shall all be made alive. Salvation means less if there is no fall, and and if the 
account of the fall of Adam and Eve in Genesis 3 is unhistorical, then that waters down the, the doctrine of original sin, the problem that Christ came to solve. So having given us the the story of the fall of Adam and Eve in chapter 3, we see the effects of the fall spelled out for us in chapters 4 to 11. Cain killing Abel, a wickedness becoming so great on the earth that God resolves to send a flood to destroy the entire land. And then the, the incident of the Tower of Babel is another incident where people are refusing to be fruitful and multiply, which is one of the commands in the first chapter of Genesis. So that sin arises. God um, judges that sin by scattering them as they, he confuses their language. And then his message of grace comes along with the first Hebrew, uh, the first Jew, so to speak, in the choosing of Abram to to establish the name of God and, and Abram's genealogy, from whom the ultimately the Savior will come. And so the rest of the book of Genesis is a story of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. The first three of them are the patriarchs. Uh, the last one is the son who arranged for the people of Israel to live in Egypt during the famine. And uh, the second last chapter, as a matter of fact, contains one of the more powerful messianic prophecies. So in, in a sense, you could say the book of Genesis is about how Jesus was necessary to solve the problem of human sin that originated in chapter 3 because Adam and Eve corrupted what God had made in chapter 1. Dr. Joel Heck is our guest. Ten more minutes with him on the other side of the break. Now, he has mentioned there briefly Genesis chapter 2. It is also one of the, uh, well, it's, it's an easy trap to fall into, one of the snares laid by those who want to call into question Genesis chapter 1 to pit it against Genesis chapter 2. They say, well, we've got to be dealing with some kind of metaphorical literature because the story changes from chapter 1 to chapter 2. We'll see if that's true after this. Good Shepherd Lutheran Church in Collinsville, Illinois, is happy to support the Christ-centered, cross-focused ministry of Issues Etc. Join us for worship, Bible classes, youth ministry, and other opportunities to grow in Christ. We have a Christian day school for children in preschool to eighth grade. We are located at 1300 Beltline Road. Call us at 618-344-3151 or visit www.goodshepherdcollinsville.org. Right now, many churches are planning their budgets for the next fiscal year. Your church can support the worldwide outreach of Issues Etc. by joining the Issues Etc. 300. We're looking for 300 congregations to include $1,000 in their mission or advertising budgets. Find out more about the Issues Etc. 300 on the support page of our website, issuesetc.org. Don't miss your congregation's budget deadline. Download the flyer and present it to your congregation today. Luther had Wartburg. We have Collinsville. You're listening to Issues Etc. Here's a great resource for Sunday school teachers. Mondays, we interview Deaconess Pam Nielsen of Concordia Publishing House about the upcoming Growing in Christ Sunday school lesson. You'll find these interviews under the Listen on Demand page of our website, issuesetc.org. 
Listen to a 20-minute interview with Pam Nielsen, and you'll be prepared to teach Sunday school this weekend. Issuesetc.org. Click Listen on Demand and look for Teaching a Sunday School Lesson with Deaconess Pam Nielsen. We've got nothing against bumper stickers, just bumper sticker theology. And we'd like to send you an Issues Etc. bumper sticker. You'll find the Issues Etc. logo, slogan, and website address. Simply send your request to Lutheran Public Radio, Box 912, Collinsville, Illinois, 62234. Please include a self-addressed stamped envelope. Good theology doesn't fit on a bumper sticker, but you can tell people where to find good theology, the Issues Etc. bumper or window sticker. One of our regular guests here on Issues Etc., Dr. Paul Meyer, professor of ancient history at Western Michigan University in Kalamazoo, Michigan, not only finishing 50 years in the classroom, but also will be at a, this is going to be a great event, if only to hear this very learned and storied teacher of ancient history for yourself. He's going to be talking about the nexus of Christianity and Islam at a conference featuring him called The Crescent and the Cross, Islam and Christianity, June the 11th through the 14th at Concordia University, Wisconsin. Now, for more information on this Bible Institute with Dr. Paul Meyer on Islam and Christianity, go to their website, concordiabible.org, concordiabible.org, or call and ask about this June 11th through the 14th conference The Crescent and the Cross, Islam and Christianity, featuring Dr. Paul Meyer, the area code 262-243-4343, area code 262-243-4343. Dr. Joel Heck is our guest. We're talking about the creation account according to Genesis, part two of a four-part weekly series with him. Before we get to some of our listeners' questions, you mentioned Genesis chapter 2, and it is often an objection raised by those who have a problem with Genesis chapter 1. They will contend that Genesis chapter 2 tells a distinctly different creation story. It's a different version of the same story, so both can't be true. Yes. Uh, in fact, I believe that there's only one creation account in all of Scripture. It's in the first chapter of Genesis. Chapter 2 isn't another account. It's just a closer look at the sixth day of creation. And even the passage in Job 38 that I cited earlier talks about creation. There are lot, dozens of places where creation is mentioned, discussed, a little additional detail given. But there's really only one creation account, so I would encourage people not to believe Uh, someone who says there are multiple creation accounts, uh, because I think what they're trying to do is to set up the possibility of a contradiction between the various accounts, and therefore we can't really trust or take literally what we have in the first chapter of Genesis. And that's what they do with chapter 2. I like the NIV, and I believe the ESV does the same thing with this in the way they translate the past tense of the Hebrew verb at both verses 8 and 18. It um, says in verse 8 that God planted a garden, but Adam and Eve have just been made. God formed man from the dust of the ground, verse 7. Not Adam and Eve, but Adam has been made. And uh, then in verse 8 it says the Lord God had planted a garden. Now, if if you take out the word had, as some of the translations do that are 
let's say, don't have nearly the same respect for the Word of God as I do, then it makes it sound like God created Adam, and then he created vegetation by planting this garden. And Adam and Eve were created on the last day, and vegetation was created earlier, according to Genesis 1. That would create a contradiction between chapters 1 and 2. Now, that's not a problem unless you have a, a belief that the Scripture is inerrant. That's what I happen to believe, so I don't think we have a contradictory order of creation, and it is easily solved by understanding that the Hebrew verb simply has a past tense. It refers to action taking place in the past, and a past tense of a Hebrew verb can be translated planted or had planted, and it seems to me that it's going to depend upon whether you think the Bible contradicts itself or not. I think it doesn't. So had planted, referring to the creation of vegetation before the creation of Eve, had planted makes a whole lot more sense. Morris, and the same thing is true in verse 19, by the way, formed or had formed the beasts of the, of the field. Morris in Houston, Texas says, I've read Dr. Heck's book, just got it a few days ago. I appreciate the focus on Scripture and reading it for what it says. If Christians take the approach in Genesis of reading into it anything we want, what's to stop us from doing that anywhere we feel threatened or uncomfortable with what God's Word says? Your thoughts there? Well, that's exactly true, and and I don't want to portray those that disagree with me as uh, um, guilty of a unique sin. I, I face the same problem, I and and all of us do, and I think we'd be better off admitting the fact that sometimes uh, we don't allow the Scripture to speak for itself, but we come to a text of Scripture or to the Bible in general with the with a preconceived idea, and then we look for support to to buttress a position we've already held. And we need to do exegesis, which is a word that means to lead out of the text the meaning that's there, rather than reading into the text the meaning that we want to find. So let the voice of God speak. Uh, he did a very fine job also in, in Genesis chapter 1. So we, we simply need to do exegesis when we read Genesis 1 and 2 and not uh, the other thing, the, the reading into it, what we already believe. And it seems to me that those that hold to the billions of years for the existence of the universe have come to the text of Genesis already with that commitment, and now they're trying to figure out some way in which to reinterpret or reread the the first chapter so as to coincide with what they think are the assured results of science. Kate, listening in Japan, says, I've heard it said that Genesis 1 may not be poetry, but could be a hymn. What are your thoughts there? It's just another one of those attempts to read Genesis in some other way. I, where is the the rhythm in the first chapter of Genesis? Where is an indication that this was something intended to be sung? Uh, there have been uh, half a dozen different explanations, not just poetry, but metaphor, myth, saga, legend, and even one more recently uh, offered by a Wheaton College scholar, uh, the Cosmic Temple Inauguration View, which really kind of blows my mind that uh, he would read Genesis 1 as a Cosmic Temple Inauguration Ceremony. It, there's no clue that it's that anywhere in Old or New Testament. There's no hint 
anywhere in Old or New Testament that the first chapter of Genesis to be, is to be read as a hymn. Hymns are typically poetry, so it's just another version of the attempt to read Genesis 1 as poetry. And if it's poetry, then you can't take everything literally, and then we don't have to take the word day literally and some of the other things. And so, therefore, we have found a way in which to get around the clear intent of the biblical writer there in Genesis 1. It sounds like the dilemma, in addition to what you just outlined there, Dr. Heck, the dilemma for someone who wants to, in a sense, take Genesis out of its context and deal with it as though it, as though it were uh, unrelated to what follows, the dilemma that they face there is they must answer the question— about the rest of the book. They must answer, how does one fit into the rest of the chapters, don't they? I, th- I think that's very much a, a very important issue. A very The context is a crucial matter in dealing with any passage of Scripture, and certainly with the first chapter of Genesis. There is poetry later on in the book. I mean, I did my doctoral dissertation on the 49th chapter of Genesis, which is almost entirely poetry, but you can look at the chapter, you can read it and see that as poetry, just like you can do with Genesis one twenty seven. In context, Genesis gives us straightforward history, page after page, chapter after chapter, with bits and pieces of poetry here and there in other places in the first 11 chapters, not just in uh, uh, the 27th verse of the first chapter, uh, the, the whole thing about Lamech in uh, chapter 4, talks about the wise that he has and how he killed a man for wounding him, a young man for injuring him. There's that parallelism again there in Genesis 4, 23 and 24. So there are bits and pieces of poetry in different parts of Genesis, but it doesn't take rocket a rocket scientist to read so many passages in Genesis and, and understand it's simply straightforward narrative. And it is using... If I can get a little technical here, typically the Hebrew wow consecutive, which is a narrative way of sequencing the text to say this happened, and then this happened, and then this happened. And that happens a lot in the first two chapters of Genesis. Dr. Joel Heck is professor of theology at Concordia University, Texas. He's author of The Issues Etc., Book of the Month for May, In the Beginning, God, Creation from God's Perspective. Dr. Heck will be back with us Monday on the program when we continue our series on the creation account according to Genesis. Dr. Heck, thanks for being our guest. It's my pleasure. Tomorrow on Issues Etc., we'll talk to Gretchen Passantino of Answers in Action about Harold Camping's prediction of the secret rapture, eventually the end of the world. Three days from now, Harold Camping's got a lot riding on this. May 21st, he's been saying for some time now, will be it, at least for the Christians' presence in the world. Now, I quipped the other day, who would really believe this? And my producer was quick to correct me. He said a lot of people have believed it. A lot of people do believe it. We'll see what Gretchen Passantino has to say tomorrow on issues, etc., about Harold Camping's prediction of a rapture on May 21st. That would be this week, folks. So if you believe it's going to happen, all the more reason to tune in tomorrow and listen to what Gretchen has to say about it. We have a seamless account here, if we're honest in our reading of this, a seamless account of what God did. And it begins with God doing this creation. And then it 
follows naturally upon the fall of man that God would do the salvation of the world. And if we take the first part away and make it into a myth, the second part doesn't make a lot of sense, does it? I'm Todd Wilkin. Talk with you again tomorrow. Thanks for listening to Issues Etc. Listen weekday afternoons to Pastor Todd Wilkin and guests on Issues Etc. Issues Etc. is a listener-supported program. Your financial support is vital for the continuation and expansion of this worldwide outreach. Our mailing address, Lutheran Public Radio, P.O. Box 912, Collinsville, Illinois, 62234. Box 912, Collinsville, Illinois, 62234. You can also donate at our website, issuesetc.org. Issues Etc. is a production of LPR, Lutheran Public Radio.